This episode is brought to you by the Colorado Northwestern Community College. Join them for two weeks digging up dinosaur bones from the Jurassic period in Northwest Colorado this summer. For details, go to cncc.edu slash dinodig. As you write your life story, you're far from finished. Are you looking to close the book on your job? Maybe turn a page in your career. Be Continued at the Georgetown University School of Continuing Studies. Our professional master's degrees and certificates are designed to meet you where you are and take you where you want to go. At Georgetown SCS, the learning never stops, and neither do you. Write your next chapter. Be continued at scs.georgetown.edu slash podcast. Hello, and welcome to I Know Dino, the The Big Big Dinosaur Dinosaur Podcast, Podcast. where we cover news, interviews, and discussions of all things dinosaur. Hello, and welcome to I Know Dino. I'm Garrett. And I'm Sabrina. And today we have a whole bunch of dinosaur news, and we'll be talking about Utah Ceratops. And before we get started, we just want to mention that we're doing a giveaway with Everything Dinosaurs Weebly with Taylor McCoy, who you may remember we interviewed him in episode 8. We're giving away a copy of The Dinosaur Lords, which sounds like an epic book about eight creators who it's kind of Game of Thrones-esque, except they use dinosaurs as weapons. So should be a fun read. If you want to enter, go to our website at inodino.com. We have a post up and you can enter via Twitter, Facebook, and Google+. You have until Friday, March 4th to enter, so good luck. We want to give a big thank you to Kyle and Chris, our patrons at the reward level where we give them a shout out every month. We also have lots of other patrons that we really appreciate all the support from. And our next goal is when we get to $200 a month, we're going to send out stickers to everybody. We recently had some stickers made and we love them because they actually look like the T-Rex head of our logo is sticking out of a circle and they're a lot of fun and we want to share them with everybody when we get to that level. So if you're interested in supporting us, please go to patreon.com slash inodino and watch our video. So jumping right into the news is a story that's published in Taylor and Francis Online in Historical Biology, an international journal of paleobiology, by L.J. Krumnacker and others. It's titled, Theropod Dinosaurs from the Albion-Synomian Lion Formation of Eastern Idaho. And Albion-Synomian is hyphenated like it's in both of those paleontological stages. And then obviously the Wyan formation. So specifically what they found were a few teeth, some vertebrae, and a couple of eggs. So the fossils date back to the beginning of the late Cretaceous about 95 million years ago and were found in the same formation as Oryctodromius, which we discussed with Anthony J. Martin in episode 2. And that's one of the biggest finds to come out of that area. There haven't been too many big discoveries in Idaho. According to the Montana State University website, two of the fossils are characterized as tyrannosauroids, and Krumnacker said that the large tyrannosauroid might have been about the size of a horse, and the smaller one might have been about the size of a dog. So not particularly huge for tyrannosaurs or tyrannosauroids, but still pretty big for a carnivore. 
The pair of large oviraptorosaur eggs are the first oviraptorosaur traces found in the area, and they believe that the oviraptorosaur was probably very big for an oviraptorosaur. Also, according to the Montana State University, Krumnacher, quote, hails from Idaho and has been searching his home state for dinosaur remains for more than a decade, end quote. And in the process, he has become an expert on Idaho dinosaurs. And in the conclusion, they say, quote, while the available fossil evidence is meager, it is distinct enough to demonstrate the presence of a large possible tyrannosauroid, small tyrannosauroids, a possible neovenatorid, allosauroid, dromaeosaurids, intermediate small theropods, and a giant oviraptorosaur, end quote. So rather than a new and exciting articulated dinosaur, we're really left with a better understanding of the diversity in Cretaceous Idaho, which is also very important and interesting to know. The specimens will be kept at the Idaho Museum of Natural History in Pocatello, which holds the permit for collecting fossils from federal lands that allowed these fossils to be collected. There wasn't any word about when they would be on display, probably because they're such recent finds and they're not big and exciting, so maybe they'll just be housed in a back room for a while. Next in the news is another peer review article, this one published in Nature's Scientific Reports by Linda Shing and others, including researchers from China University of Geosciences in Beijing and paleontologists from the University of Bristol. The article is titled, Digit-Only Sauropod Pez Trackways from China. Evidence of swimming or a preservational phenomenon? Question mark. So it's kind of interesting because the title is setting up a question rather than answering a question. But in the abstract, Shing explains that for, quote, more than 70 years, unusual sauropod trackways have played a pivotal role in debates about the swimming ability of sauropods, including trackways of four limbs only, which led some to believe that sauropods swam. One reason given at the time was that they were so heavy, they would have had to have been aquatic. And you've probably seen pictures of dinosaurs in lagoons based on these theories, especially older pictures. But Shing says that these previous tracks were unconvincing. Shing and her group found tracks from the Lower Cretaceous Hekau group in Gansu province in northern China. And the thing that made these tracks unique is that it's only the hind limb prints and not the forelimb prints, as had been discovered earlier. So now we have hind limb only and forelimb only prints, but how can we explain that if we know that they can't walk around just on their hind limbs or forelimbs on land, and if they weren't swimming? Shing and her group believes that the key lies with something called under tracks, and that, quote, a layer of sediment can, in theory, serve a similar purpose to a column of water in protecting another surface from the full or direct impact of a track maker's foot, end quote. They believe that a combination of fine sandstone, siltstone, and mudstone can create a situation where only some of the tracks are preserved, specifically if claws of a hand or foot dig past a top layer and into a lower layer where they are preserved, it would leave certain tracks that might look like only hands or feet were on the ground. Their theory is further enhanced by the fact that there aren't any track marks from the hands or feet that weren't contacting the ground, like scrape marks that would be dragging behind, like when we talked about the Stegosaurus swimming potentially and how its feet kind of changed and turned into scratch marks. 
They include a really nice picture showing the different stratigraphic sections and how they think that the foot may have pressed through one layer into another layer and left the print in the deeper layer. And the authors are careful to say that they aren't sure if sauropods never swam, citing that elephants can reportedly swim for long distances, so maybe sauropods could, we just don't have any good evidence of it, and they don't think that the tracks we've found so far are evidence of swimming. I don't really think of elephants as swimmers. I know, that's why, <laughs> partly why I put in the caveat, reportedly swim, because I didn't actually confirm that. Yeah. Painters, yes. Swimmers. <laughs> don't know. Yeah, it seemed crazy that they could swim, but I guess it makes sense. Why not? It's difficult to be sure of anything when looking at tracks that are so old, including whether or not the hand and feet prints even came from the same dinosaur. So trackways are always a little bit difficult to interpret, and we'll just have to hope we find more trackways that might be a little more conclusive in the future. Next in the news is another trackway finding, this one from Colorado in the U.S., and in this case, about a week ago, Martin Lockley from the University of Colorado published a news release indicating that he had found some dromaeosaurid, or raptor as the news likes to call them, prints. You probably remember that dromaeosaurs have that one sickle claw that sticks up in the air on the innermost digit of their foot, so it's kind of like a big toe on a human foot. Because they have just the three toes sticking forward and the one is sticking up, the prints look kind of like they only have two out of three of the toes of the print, but really that's what their prints would have looked like right after they stepped because they have the one toe sticking up in the air. So it's, they're pretty unique and interesting looking. The prints were discovered at Dinosaur Ridge, which is in the Morrison Formation in Colorado. According to Lockley, these types of tracks are incredibly rare. Quote, there are only about 16 reports worldwide, and 12 of these are from China and Korea, end quote. And only one other print is known in the U.S., and that one's in eastern Utah from 112 million years ago. They believe that the rock that the tracks are in is about 105 million years old, and that they are the first ever set of tracks in North America. Apparently the ones in eastern Utah must not be a whole set. Lockley compared the size of the dinosaur to an emu, and I couldn't find any sources where he speculated which dromaeosaurid specifically might have made those prints, but based on the size, location, and time, it seems to me like the most likely is probably Deinonychus, although the current estimate has it going extinct about 3 million years before the prints, but those timelines often shift, so I could be wrong, but... Something like Deinonychus seemed like about the size of an emu, and it was in that area a couple million years before. Next in the news is an article from the journal Cretaceous Research titled Multiple Neoplasms in a Single Sauropod Dinosaur from the Upper Cretaceous of Brazil by Fernando Henrique de Sousa Barbosa and others. The article is behind a paywall, so most of my information is coming from Discovery News. And basically, they believe that they have found the first evidence of a tumor in a non-hadrosaur dinosaur. So apparently, tumors are actually pretty common in hadrosaurs, but this find was unique because it is from a titanosaur, and we had never seen one in a titanosaur before. The bone was discovered in Brazil's Sao Paulo state in 2012, 
and it's a vertebra that's seven inches or 17 centimeters long. And when inspecting it, researchers noticed a small, unusual bump measuring 8.6 by 7.5 millimeters, or about 0.34 by 0.3 inches. And perhaps even more interesting is that when they put it in the CT scan to get a closer look at that bump, they discovered another tumor on the same bone, but this one was kind of buried inside the bone, or the bone fossil to be more rigorous. The tumor on the outside of the bone is called an osteoma, or a bone overgrowth, while the other is called a hemangioma, or vascular tumor. Both of the tumors would have been benign and not considered cancerous, and Barbosa says that he would like to find other bones of extinct animals so we might better understand why they developed these tumors. And next in the news, thanks to Janice who pointed this article out to us on Facebook, Science Alert wrote a story about Alexandra Elbakian, a researcher in Russia who created the site SciHub, which makes over 48 million scientific journal articles available online for free. And as those of you who may access scientific journals from time to time know, these articles are not always free, and it can often add up to be pretty expensive to access. And Garrett just mentioned how we couldn't learn more about a new dinosaur that was discovered because it was behind a paywall. Yeah, that happens now and then. We mentioned a few episodes ago about how more and more journals are going to open access or people are publishing more things in open access journals. But while some are still posted in these paid journals, it kind of leaves you with a dilemma of do you want to try to pirate it so you can see it? Because it costs quite a bit of money just to read one article. It can... Right. But for the record, we don't. We yeah. end up just having limited information yeah because we can't it gets pretty expensive i think articles range in price from 30 to 50 dollars maybe yeah. more sometimes so it just doesn't make any sense to pay for each one there's yeah. so many coming out yeah that's true and you can't really subscribe to all the journals either or we can't really feasibly because they tend to be 100 or 200 dollars a year and there are quite a few of them but there's Definitely a place for the paid journals because I've heard that it lowers the burden on the people that are publishing it, but then it makes it harder for others to access it. So it's kind of a double-edged sword. Yeah, there's a huge debate going on. So Alexandra, in the article, she said that she believes that this knowledge should be free, and that's why she's decided to keep her site up despite there being a lawsuit by Elsevier, which is a large publisher. So again, according to the article, there's a debate going on about whether or not journals help the progress of science. And it says, quote, In some cases, the publisher-perish mentality is creating more problems than solutions, with a growing number of predatory publishers now charging researchers to have their work published, often without any proper peer review process or even editing, end quote. There's a lot more to the debate than that, but bottom line is that Alexandra is now accusing Elsevier of having an illegal business model and hopes that the lawsuit will, quote, set a precedent and make it very clear to the scientific world either way who owns their ideas. Yeah, that's really interesting. We're definitely not experts on the subject, but we obviously prefer it when they're in open access because then we can read them. But I have heard that sometimes that's not feasible because it puts more of a burden on them. Yeah, so. I can understand both sides of the argument, so it'll be interesting to see where this goes. Yep. Next in the news, speaking of non-peer-reviewed journals, <laughs> is an article from the Adam Smith Institute, which, according to their website, is, quote, independent, nonprofit, and nonpartisan. It works to promote 
libertarian and free market ideas through research, publishing, media commentary, and educational programs, end quote. It's not peer-reviewed. It's basically just like a think tank thing, and they just publish articles about what they think about things based on whatever research they feel like doing, but nobody gets a chance to say, we think you're wrong because of this or that. So it's not considered a scientific paper. It's just kind of a opinion on what's going on, or in this case, a prediction. So they're based in the UK, and the author of this paper is Dr. Madsen Peary, and his article is titled, The UK and the World in 2050. And overall, it's incredibly optimistic. So the reason we're talking about it, though, is that he expects within the next 34 years, because that's when 2050 is, biology will advance to the point where we can recreate extinct animals. And he's saying that a mammoth and a dodo will be recreated using DNA, but that dinosaurs won't be recreated with DNA, but rather created by reverse engineering birds like the Chickenosaurus that we've talked about before. He also says that, quote, once one type is successfully developed, others can be developed from it, just as modern dogs all descend from wolves, though, of course, with modern technology, this will be done within years, decades at most, instead of millennia, end quote. I thought that part was kind of interesting because he's implying that you could reverse engineer a bird to something that looks like a dinosaur and then somehow speed up its breeding process so you can basically make breeds of dinosaurs by just reverse engineering one bird which sounds pretty weird i think you would have to go through the same process but who knows and he also says quote this will be controversial because some scientists will claim that these will not be descendants of the original dinosaurs, but modern creations created to look and act like the originals. This is a valid criticism, but it is highly likely that there will not be much of a difference and that they will be accepted as real dinosaurs, end quote. And I think he's probably right about that. Everybody in the paleontological community and biology in general will probably say that's not a dinosaur, it's a reverse-engineered chicken or emu or whatever. But in all the pop culture and everything, people are just going to call them dinosaurs for sure. <laughs> Considering people, you know, they call Mosasaurs dinosaurs, why not call a reverse-engineered chicken a dinosaur? Indominus Rex is a dinosaur. Yeah, <laughs> pretty much. I mean, as far as pop culture is concerned, why not? Some of the other non-dinosaur-related predictions are massive increases in wealth due to automation, diseases being eliminated, better education, increases in solar power, autonomous cars, massive improvements in agriculture due to genetically modified organisms, less pollution, and that retirement will no longer exist and people will think that it's weird that it ever did. Sounds like a pretty good world. I don't know about the retirement <laughs> thing, but everything else... Yeah, he phrased it by saying something like, people will think it's strange that you used to work for 30 or 40 years and then not work for 20 years and that that was everybody's goal. And if everybody's job is super easy because of automation, maybe that makes sense. I don't know. Yeah, could be. In different news, it seems like more and more dinosaur replicas are being made. One of the latest sets of replicas are going in the Bandera Natural History Museum in Texas, which will open this spring on an eight-acre site. The artist who made the replicas is Jose Adid, who has worked on dinosaurs for Jurassic Park and Night at the Museum. And people who live in the area may have seen a triceratops being airlifted in the past week or so. 
So that would have been a fun sight. <laughs> yeah. More fun than the Triceratops that was blocking traffic even <laughs> in the UK. <laughs> and next, thanks to at Dino Toy Blog on Twitter for this one. A Gigantoraptor is going on exhibit in Nottingham in the UK next summer. Until now, these fossils have been in Asia since they were first discovered in 2007. This Gigantoraptor weighed over 2 tons and was 13 feet tall, or 4 meters, and 26 feet long, or 8 meters. But it was still probably only a subadult. It had feathers, which it probably used for display, didn't have teeth, it had a beak, and it would have run very fast. It also apparently laid some very large eggs. Another dinosaur to go on display in Nottingham is a Microraptor. So the theme of their exhibit will be to show how dinosaurs evolved into birds. Interesting. Mm-hmm. It'll be kind of funny to put a big one next to a little one. <laughs> it's like us. Yeah. Next to the news, a Canadian resident who was arrested a little while ago just got sentenced for smuggling dinosaur fossils. According to the Washington Times, a Canadian resident was caught with the illegal dinosaur fossils in Arizona. The man is Jun Yang, a 36-year-old from Richmond, British Columbia, and he had previously pled guilty to smuggling. The police say Yang is president of Arctic Products, Inc. He was arrested after the 2015 Tucson Gem and Mineral Show, where he was trying to sell a Cetacosaurus fossil for $15,000, and he had 16 hadrosaur egg fossils for sale for $450 apiece. Yang told undercover police that the eggs were from a duck-billed dinosaur, and the Cetacosaurus fossil was 100 to 130 million years old, and from the Henan province of China. Since exporting fossils from China is illegal, he eventually admitted that he had smuggled the fossils out of China using shipping containers, and then he got sentenced to five years of probation and a $25,000 fine. So, not that steep of a... Yeah, that's not too bad. I think we talked about him when he was first caught. Yeah, I think we did too when he got arrested, but now it's all settled. On a more fun note, do you like mashups? Because Milo the Cat of the YouTube channel Is This How You Go Viral made a mashup of Barney the Dinosaur singing the notorious B.I.G. song Get Money. It's not quite as good as the mashup of Earl Sinclair from the show Dinosaur singing Biggie's Hypnotize, but it's still very entertaining. And they do a good job of making it look like Barney is singing the song. That's cool. Yeah, we'll post a link on our blog. Another video that's a little bit more realistic <laughs> that I was really excited about, I think we talked about before with the titanosaur that got put up in the American Museum of Natural History. We said there was an upcoming nature documentary, and I said, what's a nature documentary? Well, it just came out, and on the BBC, it was called Attenborough and the Giant Dinosaur, and it aired about a week ago. And I believe it's the exact same as the nature documentary titled Raising the Dinosaur Giant, which is available on PBS.org until March 17th of this year. And thanks to Brendan on Facebook for showing us how to get to that. It was still, even knowing it was there, it was still really hard to find because it's not listed in the shows. And if you search for Attenborough, you don't find it. We ended up finding a one-minute clip and then going through that, and then it had a link to the full episode. Yeah, which is almost an hour long. Yes, but it's super awesome. We haven't finished watching it yet. We took a break to record this, but it's really good so far. It's a documentary that's all about that Titanosaur, which is now on display 
in the American Museum of Natural History in New York, like I said. And he discusses the discovery and the construction of the skeleton. But most importantly, he guides a VR experience with a CGI version of the titanosaur. And since obviously you can't see that just on a regular computer screen, you have to use either Google Cardboard or you can watch it on YouTube and you can click and drag around to get a 360 degree video. The segment on YouTube is really fun to watch and it has David Attenborough narrating while he's on a scissor lift like the one in an inconvenient truth that Al Gore uses to like go up really high if you know what I'm talking about. <laughs> but he's scooting along next to the titanosaur and he narrates things like look at all the bones and then the titanosaur turns into an x-ray looking thing and then he points out the heart and some of the air sacs as well as special ligaments that it uses to walk that are connected to the tail. And it's really cool. Everybody should definitely watch it. I still don't have my VR headset thing, so I just watched it dragging around on YouTube with a mouse, but it was still really cool to look around and see the titanosaur. And another fun thing, on the BBC website, there's a short clip of a video with David Attenborough's first experience with VR, where he says, quote, I wish there was more of it, end quote. <laughs> and he was totally amazed and he's trying to look around in the chair because, you know, you can turn 360 degrees. And he said it was really good at getting the point across and he was excited that it was coming out. Cool. Yeah, it's really awesome. Nothing better than dinosaurs in VR. Guess we'll know for sure when you get your Oculus. Yeah, so excited. This next one is not exactly news, but we just heard about it thanks to Luke via Facebook. An artist named Laura Cooper draws Disney princesses reimagined as velociraptors, along with funny captions. Some highlights include Ariel eating a piece of Ursula's tentacle, saying, I just want to bite a part of your world. Hmm. There's also Snow White as a velociraptor with a torn up dress saying, Someday my lunch will come. Hmm. And Pocahontas surrounded by a helmet and raccoon cap saying, I can eat all the colors of the wind. <laughs> <laughs> Laura's also got some new images on her website for Star Wars, including one of Queen Amidala squatting over a body and saying, you've been Darth Mauled. <laughs> a quick mention here. We just got the good dinosaur on Blu-ray because apparently it's already the end of February, kind of snuck up on us. And to celebrate... We're going to review all the special features of the Blu-ray on our next episode, and we're also going to include all the special features from We're Back and The Land Before Time also. And then we'll be publishing a one-year anniversary episode soon, too, which I should have posted about a month ago, but I've been behind, so look forward to that. I'm going to just do a best of with some of our favorite news stories and some of the dinosaur discoveries that happened last year. And speaking of Good Dinosaur, it turns out there are more Easter eggs in The Good Dinosaur than just the reference to the Pixar Classroom, A113, which we talked about in a previous episode. An article on Yahoo pointed out a car that's in the asteroid belt before an asteroid misses hitting Earth. And one of the berries that makes Arlo and Spot hallucinate is actually a memory ball from Inside Out. That's cool. Yeah. There's apparently more in the film, and now that it's out on Blu-ray, we have a chance of catching them. If you notice any others, please let us know. Apparently the Blu-ray also has some deleted scenes, including one emotional scene of Arlo building the silo that holds the family's food. It's supposed to be a scene like with a kid building a car with his dad. Hmm. 
And according to an article in USA Today, they cut the scene because, quote, it showed Arlo as weak and incapable. I think he looked pretty weak and incapable anyway. I think that's a little harsh. Maybe too weak and incapable. I mean, he was getting chased around by chickens. He was a small, young dinosaur. Poor Arlo. (laughs) And that's it for the news. This episode is brought to you by the Colorado Northwestern Community College, where you can become a part of the scientific process. As a participant, you can go on a real-life dinosaur dig, and you'll be helping to advance science and our understanding of the ancient world. What's really cool is that the fossilized bones that are being excavated, they're public, and they're going to be displayed and preserved for future generations to study and admire. Yeah, we've mentioned how that's a really important part of the scientific process, not just getting them out and describing them once, but keeping them and preserving them so that future questions and future scientists can take a look at those bones to answer new questions and validate results. And the site is special and also near and dear to me because it's in the Morrison Formation, known for the sauropods, Mm -hmm. of course, of the Jurassic time. And it represents one of the best bone beds ever found in the saltwash member. Yeah, the current interpretation is that the site was the result of a Brachiosaurus sort of jamming up a river and then other carcasses piling up behind it. Oh, no. And that's how we got a bunch of different types of dinosaurs all fossilizing together. So, oh, no, but also, yay. (laughs) Good for us as scientists. Mm -hmm. And dinosaur enthusiasts. Yes. So there are two scheduled digs if you want to get involved with getting these bones out of the ground. You can go from July 6th to July 20th or from July 22nd to August 5th. Head over to cncc.edu slash dinodig. You'll get all of the details. Just make sure that you register online by May 31st. And again, that is cncc.edu slash dinodig, D-I-N-O-D-I-G. BP added more than $70 billion to the U.S. economy in 2022. Investments like acquiring America's largest biogas producer, Arkea Energy, and starting up new infrastructure in the Gulf of Mexico. It's and, not or. See what doing both means for energy nationwide at bp.com slash investing in America. And now for the dinosaur of the day, Utah Ceratops, which was a request via Luke via Patreon. So thanks, Luke. Utah Ceratops, the name means Utah Hornface, and the type species is Utah Ceratops gettii. And the species name is after Mike Getty, who found the holotype and helped recover fossils in the Grand Staircase Escalante Monument. It was named in 2010 by Scott Sampson, Mark Moen, Andrew Fark, Eric Roberts, Catherine Forster, Joshua Smith, and Alan Titus. And it lived in the late Cretaceous in what is now Utah. It was found in the Kaiparowitz Formation in the Grand Staircase in Utah. The holotype consists of a partial skull, and six specimens were found, including two partial skulls. It was quadrupedal, and it was pretty large, about 23 feet or 7 meters long, 6 feet or 2 meters tall, and averaged about 3 to 4 metric tons in weight. The skull was about 7 feet or 2.3 meters long, and it had hundreds of teeth in its dental battery, which it used to chomp down on plants. It had a large frill and three horns, but the horns over the eyes were not as large as the horns over a triceratops eyes. They were short and stubby and pointed to the side instead. It also had two holes in its frill to help reduce the weight of its skull, and its nose horns stuck straight up. Its horns were probably used to attract mates or scare off rivals, not 
really so much for defense. And it's been likened as a, quote, giant rhino with a ridiculously supersized head by co-author Mark Lowen. I feel like you could say that about most ceratopsians. Probably, but gosh, <laughs> seven feet long skull and about 23 feet oh, long. Oh, they did say it had small post-orbital horns too, so mm-hmm. that makes sense. It was named at the same time as Cosmoceratops in the same paper in PLOS One called New Horned Dinosaurs from Utah Provide Evidence for Intracontinental Dinosaur Endemism. Cosmoceratops had more ornate horns and frills. Utahceratops was also larger than Cosmoceratops. Because Utahceratops lived in the same time and place as Cosmoceratops, and these two ceratopsians lived at the same time as other ceratopsids in Montana and Alberta, Canada, scientists think that there was some barrier in northern Utah to keep them from mingling, but it's unclear what that barrier could have been. In the Cretaceous, western and eastern North America was separated by a flooding of water. So, maybe more water. Yeah, could be. Paleontologist Thomas Holtz said to National Geographic News, quote, if you were a time traveler and you went back to the late Cretaceous, you would take a boat from the Gulf of Mexico and sail all the way up to the Arctic Ocean and you wouldn't see land. It's pretty crazy. Yeah. So Utah Ceratops lived on a floodplain with lots of swamps, ponds, and lakes in a wet, humid climate. Other dinosaurs in the area included the Tyrannosaurid Tertiphonius, Hadrosaurus Parasaurolophus, and Gryposaurus. Ceratopsians, Nasutoceratops, and Cosmoceratops. And if you'd like, you can see Utah Ceratops at the Natural History Museum of Utah. Yeah, we saw it there along with a huge wall of a bunch of other Ceratopsians. That's really cool. Yeah. Definitely worth seeing. So Utah Ceratops was a Ceratopsian, and we talked a bit about Ceratopsians also in episode 30, Triceratops. And Ceratopsians were ornithischians that lived in North America and Asia. They had beaks and cheek teeth to eat fibrous vegetation. They also had a frill, which was used for either defense, regulating body temperature, attracting mates, or signaling danger. They probably traveled in herds and could stampede if threatened. And our fun fact of the day is that aside from several hadrosaurs, including... Brachylophosaurus, Gilmorosaurus, Bactrosaurus, and Edmontosaurus, and the recent discovery in a titanosaur, tumors have been found on other fossils as well. According to Discovery News, quote, the oldest known case of osteoma dates to the early Carboniferous, a period spanning 359 million to 299 million years ago, in the North American fish Phanerostian mirabile, the mosasaur platycarpus, a marine reptile, also had an osteoma, as did a crocodile, Ladiosuchus formidabilis, end quote. So it turns out tumors weren't that uncommon, since we've seen them in quite a few species dating all the way back to 360 million years ago, but given that fossils aren't super common, they're still kind of hard to find. All right, and that wraps up this episode of I Know Dino. Thanks for listening, and hey, if you like stickers or you would like (laughs) to get some cool dinosaur stickers, then please support us on our Patreon page at patreon.com slash I Know Dino. Until next time.